1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review. All things Zoomer worldwide, I'm Libby Zneimer. A new book highlights a forgotten chapter of the Canadian Army's Italian campaign, which made a huge contribution to winning World War II. And a new film explores the life and work of Canada's most iconic writer, Margaret Atwood, as she approaches her 80th birthday. But first... Hear your Zoomer headlines from around the world. I think I felt that it was a duty. Rain Samson-Daw is this year's national Silver Cross mother chosen by the Royal Canadian Legion. Tomorrow, she'll lay a wreath at the National War Memorial. Her son was one of six soldiers killed by a roadside bomb in Afghanistan 12 years ago. 27-year-old Captain Matthew Daw's father and three brothers have served in the Canadian military. A Goodwill store in Calgary is trying to find relatives of a fallen Second World War soldier whose medals found their way into their donations. An employee came across the medals and old family photographs in a cedar box last week. She says the store would never consider selling such sentimental items, so she took to social media to try to track down family members. Included is a memorial cross bearing the name Sergeant R.W. Finch, He died in action in 1945 and is listed as being buried at the Canadian War Cemetery in the Netherlands. Seniors are Canada's fastest-growing cannabis users. New data from Statistics Canada finds that despite cannabis use more common among younger age groups, Pot consumption among seniors has grown at a faster rate. In fact, more than one in four seniors who recently used cannabis were new users, and they're more likely to use it for medical reasons and tend to buy it only from legal sources. The national agency also found there are 10 times as many seniors using cannabis today than the same group in 2012. Young people have a new weapon against what they consider condescending arguments from the baby boom generation. The dismissive catchphrase, OK Boomer, has become a viral comeback for members of the millennial X and Z generations. It's a verbal eye roll in reaction to the kind of criticism that describes them as lazy, or snowflakes. This week, the phrase blew up on social media when a 25-year-old New Zealand politician delivered a speech about climate change and was heckled by a Zoomer in Parliament.
2: Right now, the average age of this 52nd Parliament is 49 years old. Okay, Boomer.
1: The Queen has made a big change to her wardrobe. The monarch no longer uses fur in her outfits, having switched to fake fur this year, according to her senior dresser. Angela Kelly made the disclosure in her book about her close relationship with the royal called The Other Side of the Coin. Buckingham Palace confirmed the fashion change. However, it noted the Queen's historic outfits would keep their fur intact And she won't be getting rid of anything she already owns. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canadians are often known for downplaying our own stories. As we approach Remembrance Day, author Mark Zelke is highlighting a forgotten part of our contribution to winning World War II. The River Battles is the story of one Canadian corps' crossing of the emilia Romana plain in Italy in 1944-45. The Italian campaign was the longest undertaken by the Canadian army, and by the time it ended, more than 5,000 soldiers were killed and nearly 20,000 wounded. Zalke dropped by our studios to tell the story. Why was it important to tell the story of these battles in
3: Italy towards the end of the war? I thought it was important because um, it was a period of, of history that has been largely ignored. Uh, very little written about that particular series of battles. And I think that was because it plays out in a very small geographical topographic area of uh, basically about 50 square miles of landscape for five months of intensive battle. So it, it's almost like a World War I scenario uh, with a kind of no man's land situation. And so historically Tended to largely neglect this one. They sort of thought, well, then nothing really happens because it's all taking place in such a small spe- uh, piece of land. But I did, as I was doing the research, I realized if this was a huge battle for, for the Canadians, um, one quarter of all of the casualties in the Italian campaign happened there.
1: Why do you think that? the Italian campaign has got such relatively little attention.
3: I think because it was viewed as a backwater, even in, even in the 1940s during the war, it was viewed as less important than Northwest Europe because the Canadians and the allies that were in Northwest Europe, they're moving towards Germany. They're moving to break into Germany. You know, you're not going to get to Germany via Italy. Um, so initially it started out as a, an effort to knock Italy out of the war and force Mussolini out of power. And then it became an ongoing campaign because it was holding down many divisions of German troops, which then prevented these troops from being sent to northwest Europe where they could have made a difference in fighting the Allies there.
1: When you first looked at it, you thought the story wasn't that important because there was a a lot of not much happening. Yeah. In 1944-45. That's
3: right. I fell into the same trap that the other historians had. Um, and what changed that for me was in, I was invited in December of 2014 to go to Ravenna and do a lecture on the liberation of Ravenna by Canadian troops. And so in researching that uh, lecture, and then being on the ground in that part of Italy, and, and I spent a few extra days, went out into the battlefield, started seeing the strategic and dif- difficulties that the Canadians were facing as they fought their way into that land, and realized, you know, there's a whole book there. What were the strategic difficulties? It's restored swamp land. So in the Roman era, the Romans drained this land and it started farming it. Then in the medieval area era, it was improved. And so it looks, uh, from the air, it looks like flat ground, you know, a nice big happy plain. And that's what the Canadians thought they were getting into. They called it the promised land because it finally, in Italy, it's all mountains and rugged country. Finally, they thought they would be able to run loose with their tanks and just keep the Germans running. Instead, they get out there and they find that, running across their face on all one after the other after the other are these rivers, hence the river battles. And each one had to be forcibly crossed. And and uh, then the advance begins again. And the rivers are quite narrow and very deep. And they have 20-foot dikes on either side to contain them. And so the Germans are able to dig into those dikes and then fight from those fortified fortified positions. So it's incredibly hard for um, the Canadians to throw them out of those positions.
1: Canada or the Allies were really... The invading
3: power. It started out that way. So in late 1943, we are invading. Um, Then Italy surrenders in September of 1943, and Mussolini is deposed, and the new government does a flip flop and they ally themselves with the um, Allies. And so the Germans then took over what part of Italy was still in in, in, um, fascist hands. And what developed is um, there became a a fairly strong, particularly in this area around Ravenna and Rimini, there was a very strong partisan movement that developed uh, that were fighting the Germans actively. And so the Italians, by the time we get to Rimini and Ravenna, they do see themselves as being liberated.
1: How are they at looking at their wartime record?
3: Not very good at all because they largely want to forget a lot of their involvement in it. There are certain, like the Institute, for example, that brought me over to Ravenna, it's very active in the history of the war in that area. And so they not only look at the partisans and the Canadians that came and liberated it, but they do look at, you know, what were the German units, what were the Italian fascist units from that area as well. So they're trying to be um, relatively balanced in their approach. But it's it's a real interesting debate that continues in, in Italy.
1: Mark Zalke, thanks so much. Thank you. Mark Zelke is the author of The River Battles, Canada's final campaign in World War II Italy.
0: When I was a student at Harvard, there was a library I couldn't go into because I was a girl.
4: How can you express that so calmly? Uh, because because I'm old. I-
1: That's the unmistakable voice of author Margaret Atwood. The clip is from a film called A Word After a Word After a Word is Power, that title taken from her 1981 poem, Spelling. As she's about to turn 80, Atwood is more famous and relevant than ever. Filmmakers Nancy Lang and Peter Raymond got to tag along with Atwood for a year to make their documentary, and they told me all about it.
2: Her 80th birthday is coming up, November 18th. Graham's birthday, the 85th, just a couple of months ago. So it seemed like the right time.
1: Margaret Atwood has been in the public eye for a very long
4: time. What... Did you learn about her that was a surprise? Mm. First of all, her humor and mischievous nature, given uh, I had read... The Handmaid's Tale. And I sort of had sense of this woman that's looking at the ominous and dark side of life, but in her own life, she has a, a lot of fun. She enjoys laughter. And then rereading her books now, I realize so many of her books are very, very funny. The Edible Woman—they're—they're they're full of humor that I didn't detect when I was a younger woman, and that was—that was a big surprise. Well, here's something I didn't know uh, that she had gone. To Harvard, and she said
1: the handmaid's tale was about the English literature department at Harvard. That's right.
2: And she went back to Harvard. We filmed her there. It was kind of fun. She spent years at Harvard. She was there during the Vietnam War and all those demonstrations. We, we interviewed her uh, roommate from the time, Susan Milmo. And of course, she met her and, and, and married her husband, Jim Polk, back then. This was uh, back in her Harvard days, her, her first marriage.
4: But I think Margaret loves to counter our assumptions, and so we assume yeah. that a, the cradle of democracy is is you know is Boston and Philadelphia, and 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 what she's essentially saying in in The Handmaid's Tale is that the College of, of Harvard was a Puritan based school, exactly. And it, it wasn't. Uh, Puritans were not. They shunned others. They were very very tight about their rules, etc. And so she's she wants us to question you know our assumption of what, the land of the free that the origins of American democracy. were was, was not, not what we think it is now. And that's a place where a, a, a Gilead could rear its head because there's so many uh, so religious groups in America and, and we're seeing them more and more today.
1: This whole Margaret
4: Atwood and Handmaid's Tale resurgence, how does she really view it? Well, I think that the rise of Reagan was the original environment in which she wrote The Handmaid's Tale. And then she said what's so interesting is the uh, rise of Trump has sort of as an echo, even a a stronger move to the right than even other Reagan. And I think she feels that there's such a response to The Handmaids because they're seeing the same things that happened in America 40 years ago.
1: What is really her deep response to having a revival of this when she's approaching her 80th birthday and she's more of an icon
4: now than she was then. I'd say she's surprised and buoyed by the response, especially in young people. What we were surprised was when she speaks, you'd think an 80-year-old would attract a certain demographic, but her audiences were filled with young people, particularly young women. So I think for her it must be very exciting to see Ah, uh, young women that are that are really, you know, re- responding to her ideas and her writing.
1: How central are her politics to her as a writer. Sometimes she weighs in on all kinds of things, including municipal politics, (laughs) where, you know,
4: you would wonder, you know, why is she talking about this? She remembers the war. She knows her history. Her knowledge of history is extraordinary. So she has a sense of what was happening in Germany before the rise of Hitler. And she watches that. And I think what she's doing, some people say she can see the future. I think it's mostly because she understands the past and what's happened before. So I think when and she's warning Americans about what's happening now. I think she's looking at, you know, Germany in the 30s. She grew up as the daughter of a naturalist, spending a lot of time in, would you call it, the, the
1: bush? How important yeah. sure. was that for
2: her? Oh, I think it was crucial. As she says, I was carried into the woods in a backpack when I was just a few months old. And there was her her father, the entomologist, who studied bugs and understood that world. Her mother was... You know, cooking in the woods,
4: uh, no electricity, no television. She called her mother a tomboy. So when Margaret was small, there was no gender expectations. And so when she arrived in school full time, she remembered being kind of horrified at at the, the wearing of skirts and that girls would cringe at a spider. And I mean, that was just foreign to her. And I think it also gave her not only an, on the gender identity and roles of, of women versus men or girls versus boys, but I think it gave her an uh, sort of an outsider view on on how we behave with each other and expectations. I think she arrives sort of fresh into a public school where she couldn't understand the conventions and rules and strictures around them.
2: There's one moment in the film when she's giving a speech in Amsterdam at a human rights convention she, and she says, I've, I, I'm actually an alien from another planet dressed right. as this elderly woman. <laughs> And from Canada. And I think that she, uh, in, in a sense, is an alien on another planet. I mean, she sees us uh, as an anthropologist, sees cultures and peoples, and one step kind of back and, and able to to see and analyze, see things in a different way.
1: I mean, are we reading too much into her uh, if we see her as some kind of oracle?
4: <laughs> well, I, I'd like to call, she'd probably be mortified. I'd like to call her a philosopher queen. Again, are we reading... Too
2: too much, much. <laughs> Hi, we're filmmakers. You know, we've had an opportunity to spend a year with her off and on, and we've tried to do the best we could interpreting her work and spending time with her.
1: Congratulations, Thank and you. thanks so much for being with thanks us. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you, Libby. That was Nancy Lang and Peter Raymond. A Word After a Word After a Word Is Power is their new film about Margaret Atwood. that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thank you for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all
0: things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Zneimer.